This is Christy, and we have merchandise. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com and check out amazing t-shirts, mugs, stickers. If you love great quotes, we have some of our favorites. If you love silliness, check out our mascot, Brain Man. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com, clip on the shop button, and find something for that person who needs to be reminded that we are fashioned creatures but half made up. Mary Shelley said that. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. I'm Christy Shriver, and we're here to discuss books that have changed the world and have changed us. And I'm Gary Shriver, and this is the How to Love Lit podcast. This week, we turn our attention to the United Kingdom. Uh, First of all, let me say the United Kingdom is confusing. It's Britain, England, Great Britain, United Kingdom. Uh, Us Americans sometimes have a little trouble figuring all that out. But for our purposes today, it's going to be the United Kingdom consisting of England, Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland. Uh, This episode will focus more specifically on the part of Great Britain that covers the northern third of the island of Great Britain, plus over 790 other little islands, and that would be Scotland. We want to discuss and celebrate a man uh, that enchanted the world with his homeland, uh, but he also changed the way the world enjoys storytelling, and that person would be Sir Walter Scott. You know, we've talked about Scotland a few times before. It was one of the settings in Frankenstein. We've also featured Robert Burns. He was one of the first people we talked about on the podcast, the Scottish poet. We remember every New Year's Eve when we sing or play Old Lang Syne. Both Scott and Burns deserve credit for bringing the culture and language of Scotland to the attention of the entire world. But Scott... uh, although today is the lesser known of the two writers, charmed the world during his lifetime with the setting of his homeland in very much the same way that J.K. Rowling has done so with the settings in Harry Potter. You know, Scott glamorized the Scottish landscapes. He glamorized the Scottish history. He glamorized the bagpipes and perhaps most iconically of all, the Scottish Tartan kilt. (laughs) (laughs) You know, in our generation, we can't forget the role Mel Gibson played uh, in teaching us a little bit about Scottish history in 1995 with his movie Braveheart. I mean, it's being criticized for being somewhat inaccurate, but my response to that is, it's Hollywood. They're never going to worry about accuracy. Uh, But for a lot of people, it was our introduction into the life of William Wallace, who otherwise would have remained obscure to a lot of, especially Americans. And uh, he was the Scottish knight from 1270. 
And, uh, you know, Mel Gibson painted his face blue and portrayed Scotland's hero, shouting freedom. And, of course, the most famous quote from the movie that every man dies, but not every man really lives. Yeah, you know, that movie really is iconic. I haven't seen it in years, but I can still see in my mind's eye Gibson with that blue face shouting that famous speech on the fields near Sterling Castle. How accurate do you think that speech is, <laughs> by the way? Well, you know, the historical record of speeches delivered in 1270 is not uh, very robust. And, <laughs> I guess not. And in this case, the record of what Wallace may have said even at his execution has long been burned and disappeared. So sadly, we have no way of knowing what he may or may not have said during those key battles. But I would like to think that he said something inspirational, at least. True, and I guess the technology has changed uh, a lot uh, since 1270, but what hasn't changed are the landscapes, and no one even knew they were there. Well, some people did, but the world didn't until Scott vividly filled the highlands and the lowlands with glamorous locks, and that's the Scottish word for lakes, and and he, he, he filled these locks with maidens in distress and raiders and Robin Hood type villains and the Scottish Highlands and Lowlands are the settings that serve as the backdrop uh, for a lot, although not all, of the stories that Scott wrote, including two that we will feature, one this episode and one the next. In this episode, we'll focus on Scott's life story, which is fascinating in its own right, as well as a few excerpts from the famous narrative poem, The Lady of the Lake. Next episode, we'll read and discuss the short story, Wandering Willie's Tale, which itself is an excerpt from a larger work called um, Red Gauntlet. Uh, Unlike most of the works and authors that we discussed, though, Sir Walter Scott's novels are not really central to most English language secondary school curriculums today around the world. He's mentioned, and sometimes we see excerpts of his poetry included in anthologies, But his books, the things that he was the most famous for during his life, are really not that widely read today. You know, and it's unusual for us to discuss authors that aren't in standard English curriculum. Uh, So it may be worth addressing the question as why we're talking about an author that a lot of people haven't studied. I mean, uh, are you going to make the case that more of us should study Scott? Uh, I will say one of the first things visitors from other parts of the world should notice when they visit Edinburgh is that the author of Waverly is literally a central figure in the city's landscape and and, uh, also central to the story of Scotland. And and I say literally a central figure because um, if you arrive by train from London, you will arrive at Waverly Station. Mm -hmm. Uh, The train station right there in between the old town and new town is named not after a real person, but after a character in his novel. Uh, Waverly is the name of Scott's first novel, the name of his protagonist, but uh, also the common term for the 28 other novels that were to follow in that series, which gives you a little hint as to the popularity um, (laughs) of these books. 
But even if you don't take the train into town and you come to Edinburgh in an airplane, Scott will still be the first person you see as you arrive in the downtown area. Uh, and that's because if you take the Airlink Bus 100, which most everyone does and we have done, to get into town from the airport, it will drop you off right in front of his statue. I mean, it's literally the first landmark you run into as you walk down the main drag, dividing the old town and the new town, which I might add, you know, isn't that new. Uh, it still dates to the 18th century. <laughs> of course, that's relative to to the Americans. And anyway, Scott's statue is right there in the Princess Street Garden. And on any sunny day under his feet will be hundreds of people reading and talking and drinking and enjoying a green space in the city. It's the largest monument in the world to ever be dedicated to a writer. And Scott himself is carved out of Caraba marble, but the monument is 200 feet or 61 meters tall, and it weighs 30 tons. And if you climb the 287 steps to the viewing platforms, you can catch an incredible view of Edinburgh and beyond. And uh, the monument consists of the large marble statue of him and one of his dogs, but around him are 64 other statues, which are mostly different characters from his stories. Uh, although 16 are the other real historical personages like Robert Burns and Mary Queen of Scots and King James I and James V, you know, to name a few that we've heard of. Yes, and, and having said all of that, you know, Scott's reputation as a writer is in dispute. Virginia Woolf, who we've quoted before, and she can be ruthless, she said this about him. He was the last minstrel and the first salesman for the Edinburgh Municipal Gas Company. <laughs> oh. That comment is pretty snarky. Well, it is, but she's not the only one. Another critic, Edwin Murrah, calls his novels a mere repetition of the moral cliches of the time. More famously, and perhaps more cruelly, in, in a poem that's really anthologized a lot about Scotland, called Scotland 1941, he called you know, Scott, a sham bard of a sham nation. I mean, Scott's been accused, and perhaps not unjustifiably, honestly, of, of being careless and sloppy. And Critics complain he doesn't develop his character sufficiently, and his plots are predictable. Huh. Do you think that is just sour grapes because he monetized his work so <laughs> successfully? Uh, no, not really. I mean, there are things to criticize for sure, and a lot has to do with the fact that he was monetizing his fame, and, and we can talk about why. But as all good teachers know, if you want to find genius, you should look for what someone does well and not pick apart things that people do wrong. And there are wonderful things that Scott uh, does really well. Scott wasn't in any way... Uh, like Virginia Woolf, you know, trying to write a psychological insight. And and like people do today, and, and we find interesting in literary circles, he did not care about existential questions. He wasn't wrestling with depression or uncovering secrets of the human heart. I mean, he was writing for a different purpose. But I would argue that it's an equally important one. Scott inspires the imagination. And he shows us what the impact a person can have on the world and what passion and energy for a people and a place can do to change the world. And in that way, he's incredible. And we've all been touched by his influence. And that's whether we realize it or not, or if you're a big reader or not. 
For starters, and this is if you're American, if you've ever heard the song Hail to the Chief, the one that they play every time the president comes into the room, uh, uh, you've heard his work. And if, if you're a Catholic and if you've heard the song Ave Maria, both uh, Hail to the Chief and Ave Maria come from this narrative poem, Lady of the Lake, that we're going to read and was written by Walter Scott. He was the world's first best-selling author ever. During his lifetime, he was inarguably the most well-known novelist in the world. And if you've ever read a historical novel or seen someone wearing a kilt, or if you've ever wanted to visit Scotland, probably this is indirectly or directly because of the work and the effort of Sir Walter Scott. I mean, his life is fascinating. In some ways, his story is just as fascinating as the fiction that he writes. Uh, I agree. Uh, you know, that is a legacy. So um, let's start there. All right. Scott, born in 1771 to a middle-class family. At age two, he gets sick. Uh, most people think it was probably polio. Uh, the illness left him dis- disabled. He couldn't walk without having a permanent, really distinctive limp, which he did have for the rest of his life. But being disabled impacted him in a couple of big ways that would play out for the rest of his life. First of all, he got trapped inside, and so he became a reader, an incredible student of history and languages. But secondly, he became fascinated with what he could never do, soldiering. And a lot of that was because of his illness. So these are the things that he would bring vicariously to the page, the adventures of the novels that he would later write in his life. But Gary, in 1771, that's a long time ago. And sometimes when we throw out numbers and dates, we get lost in the past. So orient us. Help us understand historically what is this world. Draw us a picture of what's the world for Sir Walter Scott and really the rest of Great Britain during this time period. So what time period are we talking about? Well, first of all, I love historical context. <laughs> uh, and I'm an American, and as an American history teacher, I can't help but comment that the year 1776 is iconic for us uh, because the Declaration of Independence was drafted then and sent to King George III. Scott would have been four years old on that first 4th of July, so likely he wasn't paying much attention to <laughs> The politics of the day. Uh, But there are other things that were closer to home for Scott and for sure got his attention. Um, For starters, if you were Scottish, the looming wound of history uh, is the cataclysmic Scottish Civil War and the Battle of Culloden in 1746, which resulted in the Highland Clearances, which we're going to talk about in a minute. But that wasn't the only thing that happened in Scott's lifetime that heavily impacted the world. You know, some good, some not. Um, In 1793, there was the uh, British War with France that wouldn't end until 1815. Scott famously visited Waterloo a couple of times after Napoleon's defeat there. Uh, Vaccinations were introduced in 1796 and 1800. Ireland merged with England with the Acts of Union. Uh, The theory of light being in waves was established in 1802. Uh, The Battle of Trafalgar and the death of Lord Nelson was in 1805, and the slave trade was abolished in 1806. And the War of 1812 with the Americans, you know what year that started? (laughs) 
1812. Right. And it's going to end in 1814, the same year that gas streetlights were introduced in London. And the first railway between Liverpool and Manchester opened in 1830. And, of course, slavery was abolished in all British colonies uh, in 1833, a year after Scott's death. And, of course, all this time, the Industrial Revolution is going on and picking up steam. All the <laughs> little <Okay>. joke there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Although that you know that term wouldn't really exist for a few more years, and that's a lot, uh, I know. But it gives you kind of a general impression of what was going on in Britain as a whole before we narrow our focus on a specific part of Britain that was Scott's home. You know, for those of us who don't live in the UK, sometimes we don't understand the relationship between Scotland and Wales and Northern Ireland and England. I mean, these are places that have independent cultural identities with their own traditions and foods and religion, and they have a lot of governmental autonomy. But they also share a relationship with each other that's, you know, closer than a relationship with a different country altogether. Yes, and if you visit there, uh, some of those are immediately obvious. Uh, For example, uh, they all share the same currency, the British pound. They drive on the left side of the road, which is terrifying. (laughs) They measure distance in miles, not kilometers, uh, just like us Americans do. But if you walk with any Scot on the street, it doesn't take long to understand that there is a lot that is very unique. Uh, When we think of Scotland in particular, there are a couple of big historical distinctives that we should keep in mind. Uh, The first is the role of religious differences, and the second is the role of geography. Um, the highlands versus the lowlands. The third is the role of a person's tribe, or as they call them in Scotland, the clan. Um, You know, the reason I list all these together and not separately is because in many ways, these three things merge into one thing, and the reason for a lot of violence and death over the centuries. And uh, historically, religion in Scotland has been just as contested and intermixed with politics um, as it has been and still is in a lot of other places. And we're all familiar with conflicts between Muslims and Christians and Hindus. And we think of Catholics and Protestants having issues. But in Scotland, the religious dispute was between the Episcopalians and Presbyterians and the Catholics. And these differences, uh, like religious differences everywhere, resulted in political power struggles uh, that were actually just cloaked in religion and war and, of course, death. And, you know, in fact, one period of Scottish history in the 1600s is actually called the killing time. And, (laughs) of course, the killing time occurred well before Scott's time, but not far from where he was raised. Uh, During his lifetime, the religious and the cultural differences had everything to do with whether you were born in the highlands of Scotland, which is the rocky part, or the lowlands of Scotland, which is the green, more fertile area. And Scott was raised in the lowlands, and he was also raised as a Presbyterian, but converted from uh, that severe form of faith to a less hardcore version of Christianity and became a part of the Episcopal Church. And as such, he became part of a religious minority. But like I said, religion, politics, and geography, it all merged and mixed into a single thing during Scott's life. And they merged into a great tragedy. And uh, one of the most controversial periods in Scotland's history is called the Highland Clearances. Uh, Something that if you go to Scotland even today, 200 years later, you can still literally see the wreckage of what's left of people's burned out homes as you drive down the road. I mean, they still haven't cleaned it up from this removal. 
Wow. And, and of course, this is the setting. These are the settings uh, in, of his stories and in his books. And, and they're what people have wanted to read about. Exactly. And, and both are beautiful. Uh, and both areas are mountainous. Uh, there's no flatlands in Scotland. So I want to clarify <laughs> that. Okay. There are hills everywhere. Uh, the question has uh, how high the hill. And anyway, the northern highlands, as they're called, they have the harsher mountains and the more ominous landscapes. And because of this, the, uh, the communities there are more isolated, and the people are very loyal to their local clans. And in the South Lowlands, as they're called, it, that's not as harsh. And these are for sure hilly, but the South has green pastures, better suited to agriculture. So what happened during Scott's life and what has been called the Highland Clearances was the systematic and really catastrophic purging of the Highland people from their homes. And uh, the powers that were at that time literally went out into the country and burned down everyone's home and just said, go, we, we don't care where you go, but get out. And uh, we need this land for sheep. And this was going on during Scott's lifetime. And the general view of the people of the South, as well as in the rest of Britain, is that the Highland people of the North were backwards and almost feral. And the Highlanders uh, had a different lifestyle. They, well, they had a different lifestyle. They were warriors, and but the British called them savages. And they were loyal to their clan and really couldn't be brought into the British culture. And about 50 years before Scott was born, all this came to a head at the Battle of Culloden, which is kind of a complicated thing. But the end result was the army from the south came in and all but obliterated all things Highland and made it illegal to be a Highlander. Bagpipes and clan tartans were outlawed and punishable by being sent off to the Americas to be a slave. And the Gallic language and culture were deliberately diluted. And uh, landowners from other parts of Britain were allowed to buy land in the Highlands, basically from people who didn't even own it previously. But worse than any of that was this effort uh, which was made that happened to the regular people. You know, the Highland people were, were removed out of their ancestral homes to be replaced by a more profitable use of land, namely sheep and cattle raising. And it was just really, truly terrible. And just on the island of Skye, over 40,000 people were given writs of removal. And some of these evicted families had lived on that same land for over 500 years. And now they were told to move anywhere but here. And many of them came to the Americas, by the way. Which was my family. And my family, <laughs> resulting in a, a big, huge part of our ancestry. And uh, after they were evicted, their homes were burned down to ensure that they didn't ever come back. And at one point, they were burning 2,000 cottages a day. And at the start of the 18th century, 30% of Scots were Highlanders. By the turn of the 20th century, that number was at 8%. You know, when you describe it like that, it kind of reminds me of what happened to the Cherokee people near where we live here in Tennessee. But why? Why do this? What's the point of burning people's houses and kicking them out? Weren't there space for sheep and humans? <laughs> well, you know, it's a very similar thing uh, for many of the same reasons. I mean, there was an agricultural revolution occurring all over the world. Uh, here and in Scotland, and then this idea of a clan or a tribe collectively living off the land was was disappearing. Um, even the chieftains who tried their best to spare their tenants were going in debt, trying to live in the old way. And I mean, it's an oversimplification, but 
it comes down to resources. And uh, people were forced to move. Sheep were brought in. Lots moved to the Americas, others to New Zealand and other parts of the world. And, you know, it, this diaspora is one of the saddest periods in the history of Scotland. But it is something that's happened and still does happen even today in many places all over the world. Later as an adult, he, he would talk about it. And, and let me give you a quote of something that he said. In too many instances, the highlands have been drained, nor of their superfluity of population, but the whole mass of the inhabitants dispossessed by an unrelenting avarice. As a writer, he would, in essence, redeem and reclaim this highland culture that was dying. Uh, in other words, he wanted to be a part of saving Highland culture, which is what he ultimately did. But this would happen later on in 1783. He's 12 years old. Walter Scott moves from his little town to, and he goes and he enrolls into the University of Edinburgh. <laughs> well, let me point out that all of that seems shocking to us. Um, going to a university that young was not that unusual in that time period in Edinburgh. And in his case, being in Edinburgh at that time, put him in contact with some of the greatest minds of the day. Edinburgh of that day uh, had been nicknamed the Athens of the North because it was experiencing what today we call the Scottish Enlightenment. Scott took classes with Dougald Stewart and David Hume. I mean, these are big names even today. Adam Smith, the economist and the author of the book Wealth of Nations, was there. It was a quite a time to be in the university. Well, don't forget the literary world. Robert Burns arrived in Edinburgh in 1787. Scott was a teenager when Burns showed up in the town. He was the big thing until he wasn't. <laughs> the problem with Burns, uh, although this is what has made him famous today, was that he wanted to write the stories of working class people, folk songs, and what some people today, although not everyone, has called dialect. The upper crust wanted him to use his undeniable talent in more sophisticated ways, writing things that were classier and more what they considered more appropriate. Burns refused. I mean, he recorded stories, everyday experiences, uh, and the regular speech of regular people. And this put him in conflict with the powers to the point that it tanked his career. He had to go back and basically work himself to death uh, on his farm. And he, he died at age 37. Wow, that's terrible. True. Uh, but the bigger point of all this is this had an impact on Scott, who also would be interested in the folk stories of the people of the land. And in 1792... Scott had some time on his hands. He had been waiting. He was waiting to enter the bar, and he was the deputy sheriff of his this little community. So he decided to go on a walking tour around the part of the country that his family was from. That part is the what we call today the border country. It's between Edinburgh and the border with England. But that's just the beginning. After touring the lowlands, he went up into the highlands, and he loved it. He loved the land. He loved the people. He loved the stories. And so he started to collect them. He collected stories about the Douglas clans of the lowland, and he wrote them down in what he called riding ballads, and he celebrated these daring raiders. And he learned and used local expressions, and he learned the details of the way people were living. And all this was really unknown to the people in the cities, educated people. And at some point, he approached an old school buddy, a man by the name of John Ballantyne, who was a publisher, and he had an idea. And let me quote him. And he said, I have been for years collecting old border ballads, and I think I could, with a little trouble, 
put together such a collection from them as might make a neat little volume to sell for four or five shillings. And so he did. His first little volume, they titled it Scottish Border Minstrelly, and it sold out in England as well as Scotland. So they translated it into German, into Swedish, and Danish, and then it was published in the Americas. Scott was on to something. He published another volume, and then another one, and all of a sudden, middle class Walter Scott is a Scottish national hero. He tried his hand at poetry because that was the thing to do at the time. And his most famous work, the one that we're going to talk about today, Lady of the Lake, is set near the boundary between the lowlands and the highlands. This area is called the Trossic region. Lady of the Lake sold 30,000 copies in the first year of publication. That's not even counting the 2,000 that he sold in the deluxe edition. It wasn't long before this was adapted into a play, and then it became an opera and a panoramic display, and they even have wallpaper called Lady of the Lake. Scotland was becoming famous, and Walter Scott was becoming enormously wealthy. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let me interject and and say this. Uh, During a time period where a normal, successful run for a book would be around 700 copies, you know, (laughs) uh, books were expensive and they were for the elite. And this is an incredible showing. Uh, I also want to point out that the Lady of the Lake started another crazy phenomenon, Scottish tourism. So Scott in general, and this poem in particular, single-handedly jump-started the tourist industry in Scotland, something that had never even been a thing before. Scotland had been the outback, but now, all of a sudden, it's cool, and hundreds of local people benefited financially from this. Now Scotland was glamorous, and the entirety of the British middle class wanted to visit this particular region of Scotland, you know, that, that part between the highlands and the lowlands called the Trossachs. And I read one article where a female tourist was quoted as having counted 500 carriages all in tow to reach the site of the poem Loch Cotran. <laughs> and I would like to point out that pronunciation was taught to us by our good friends Hamish and Nancy in Scotland. Yes, we were mispronouncing it for a while. They, they corrected us. Loch Cotran. And there are records of uh, local fishermen complaining about the traffic and farmers started converting their homes into hotels. And Scotland was the setting for these medieval and magical romances with heroes and villages and landscapes and fairies and everybody wanted to be a part of it and the locks and the highlands to to quote barney stinson were legendary <laughs> literally one famous admirer who started reading these tales as a young girl was one queen victoria and she was really enchanted and we haven't introduced the Waverly novels, but those as well as the Lady of the Lake really inspired Queen Victoria to the point that not only did she visit Scotland and the Highlands multiple times, but she leased and then purchased a Highland home called Balmoral that the royal family still uses to this day. And, you know, another fun fact, uh, Buckingham Palace's pavilion had a room named after Sir Walter Scott and was decorated with scenes from his work. Well, we want to talk about the Waverly novels, uh, but before we do, let's read a few excerpts out of The Lady of the Lake. Like I said, this poem is not widely read today, and most people don't even know that Hail to the Chief and Ave Maria are pulled from it. 
But it's not because it's hard to follow. The poem rhymes and it's written in meter, but it's a story. It's loosely based on the feud between King James V of Scotland, which is the father of Mary, Queen of Scots, and the Douglas clan. I want to point that name out because Frederick Douglass, the American escaped slave and abolitionist, took his name from this play and the Klan and the play. So there's another famous connection if you're American anyway. But the whole story I want to point out is flat out fiction. It's not based on anything that really happened. No series of events like we're reading in this happened. The only real things in the story are the places. But these are described so magically and they're developed so thoroughly that that's what people loved about them and people still love that about them. The poem starts off on an island in the middle of Loch Katrin where a beautiful woman lives. <laughs> that's always a good way to start. It's a very traditional beginning. True. You'll, we'll see that in a lot of Disney uh, movies over the <laughs> years for sure. But the poem opens up, again, this might be a familiar cliche, with a lowland hunter named James Fitzjames. And he's lost, chasing a stag in the area. But unfortunately, his horse dies, and now he's afoot. He blows a horn for help, and the one who helps him is the beautiful woman, Ellen, who he immediately falls in love with. Now, while all of this is going on in the background, there's a feud. You wouldn't expect anything less between the Highlanders and the Lowlanders. We've talked about that already. In this story, the Highlanders are led by Sir Roderick Dew, who is in love with Ellen, but he's not really a good person. Uh, Ellen has two men of opposite sides now who are in dispute and love over her, but she's not in love with either of them because she's in love with this third guy, a younger guy, a Highlander chief named Malcolm Graham. Anyway, a bunch of things are going to happen in the poem. There's six cantos, but obviously it has to have a battle, and there is a battle. Uh, they all end up at Sterling Castle, there's things that happen, but it turns out that the guy she rescued there is actually secretly the king, and he recognizes who Ellen is really in love with. He puts a necklace around her neck, and she gets to be with true love. Oh, happily ever after. This sounds like the theme to a lot of familiar movies. <laughs> well, happily ever after is how it should be. Let's read an excerpt from Canto One, where Fitzjames and Ellen meet. And I think this is fun because you can hear how the language of the poem really flows and, and how it is easy to read. The mistress of the mansion came, mature of age, a graceful dame, whose easy step and stately port had well become a princely court, to whom, though more than kindred knew, young Ellen gave a mother's due. Meet welcome to her guest she made, and every courteous rite was paid. That hospitality could claim, though all unasked, his birth and name. Such then the reverence to a guest, that fellest foe might join the feast. And from his deadliest foeman's door, unquestioned turned the banquet o'er. At length his rank the stranger names, the knight of Snowden, James Fit James, lord of a barren heritage, which his brave sires from age to age, by their good swords had held with toil, his sire had fallen in such turmoil, and he, God wot, was forced to stand, off for his right with his blade in hand. This morning with Lord Moray's train, he chased a stalwart stag in vain, outstripped his comrades, missed the deer, lost his good steed, and wandered here. 
So I hope you can see that it's not hard to follow. It kind of rolls off the tongue with all those rhymes. It's a little bit like Shakespeare in a way, but, you know, certainly not as hard to understand. <laughs> True. And, and then so we have the story, but there's also these descriptions of the Scottish locks. I mean, Scotland has, by the way, over 30,000 locks, which is their word for lake. But here's a little description of the area around Loch Cotran. Boon nature scattered, free and wild, each plant or flower the mountain's child. Here a galantine embalmed the air, hawthorn and hazel mingled there. The primrose pale and violet flower found in each cliff and narrow bower, foxglove and nightshade side by side, emblems of punishment and pride. Grouped their dark hues with every stain, the weather-beaten crags retain. With boughs that quake at every breath, gray birch and aspen wept beneath aloft the ash and warrior oak, cast anchor in the rifted rock, and higher yet the pine tree hung, his shattered trunk and frequent flung, where seemed the cliffs to meet on high, his boughs athwarped the narrow sky, highest of all, where white peaks glanced, where glistening streamers waved and danced. The wanderer's eye could barely view the summer's heaven, delicious blue, so wondrous wild the whole might seem the scenery of a fairy dream. You know, what stands out are all the colors. I mean, you have the bright contrast of the different flowers and the grass and the lake and the trees and the snow and the rocks. Yes, I mean, it's a postcard. <laughs> it's what got all the tourists headed to the locks and the trossics. I mean, you know, where's the Ave Maria section, by the way? <laughs> well, that comes out in Cantu 3. Remember, the song that we know or are familiar with uh, is from the German Schubert musical version of the poem. So you have the German song, which has the melody that we're familiar with, but it's translated back into English, and that version is what we're familiar with today. Well. <laughs> That's that's full circle. <laughs> well, it is. And the story's full of circles, too. You know, in Kantu 3, Ellen is in a cave, and she's hiding with her dad, and she's praying to the Virgin Mary to protect them. And although she and her dad are Highlanders, they don't want to join Roderick in his war against the Lowlanders. And the situation is complicated because Ellen's father sympathizes with the king. And one of the things, you know, that Sir Walter Scott is known for is his belief, and this really came out of all of his enlightenment training with Hume at the university, but he believes that people tend to divide the world into two groups, us versus them. And he writes his stories in a way that shows this. You know, people are divided out into factions and they're fighting it out. What he's known for, though, is that keeping us, the reader, distant enough from the action that we can kind of see both sides of what's going on without getting personally invested or angry about one side or the other. And this allows the work to kind of highlight the most often and ignored idea that most issues, I would say all issues, have complexities. And sometimes there aren't really true good sides or bad sides, but they're good people and bad people on both sides. And both sides have legitimate perspectives. That's certainly how this story plays out if you follow it all the way to the end. But here's the original Ave Maria hymn as Ellen sings her prayer for protection. You want to sing or 
You don't have to sing it. Want to oh, read it? Oh, you want to spare our <laughs> listeners my singing voice? Is yes. that what this? Hymn to the Virgin, Ave Maria, maiden mild, listen to a maiden's prayer. Thou canst hear, though from the wild, thou canst save amid despair. Safe may we sleep beneath thy care, though banished, outcast, and reviled. Maiden, hear a maiden's prayer. Mother, hear a supplicant child. Ave Maria. Ave Maria, undefiled. The flinty couch we now must share shall seem with down of eater piled. If thy protection hover there, the murky's cavern's heavy air shall breathe of balm if thou hast smiled. Then, maiden, hear a maiden's prayer. Mother list a supplicant child. Ave Maria. Ave Maria, stainless styled, foul demons of the earth and air. From this their wanted haunt exiled shall flee before thy presence fair. We bow us to our lot of care beneath thy guidance reconciled. Here for a maid, a maiden's prayer, and for a father, here a child. Ave Maria. Well, let me circle back to the Hail of the Chief song. Uh, do you know which canto that's from? Yes, that's from Canto 2, stanza 9. It's actually called the Boat Song. And the clan sing it when the Highlander Chief Roderick Dew arrives. Here's a historical note. It was set to music around 1812 and became associated with the American president as early as 1815 to honor George Washington. The U.S. Marine Band used it in 1828 for the opening of the Chesapeake and the Ohio Canal, and John Quincy Adams was president, and off it goes into American lore. You know, this is kind of pitiful. President Polk's wife, Sarah, encouraged its regular use with her husband. He apparently was not a very commanding person, and he would be overlooked a lot when he entered the room. So she wanted something that would draw attention to the fact that he was there. <laughs> wow. His his own walk-up music, yes. as we say in baseball. So uh, here are the original words. So obviously, uh, they've been adapted as no one has seen about Robert Dew anymore. Hail to the chief who in triumph advances. Honored and blessed be the evergreen pine. Long may the tree in his banner that glances flourish the shelter and grace of our line. Heaven send it happy dew, earth lend it sap anew, gaily to burgeon and broadly to grow, while every highland glen sends our shout back again. Roderick Vish Alpine dew, ho! You know, narrative poetry was not going to be Scott's final legacy. At the peak of his fame, a new and up-and-coming poet supplanted Scott on the poetry scene. Scott's poetry sales started to decline. Scott realized that Sir Byron was a better poet than he was, and he needed to pivot. So he got an idea. One fall day, he was digging through an old cupboard, and he found a half-finished manuscript of a novel that he had started years ago based on the Jacobite Rising of 1745, the Kaleiden story that we talked about. He would write again about making choices about factions, extremisms, this time the Stuarts versus the Hanoverians, romance, history, head versus heart. But this time he would not write in poetry. He would write in prose. The problem was prose writing was for women and it was undignified. (laughs) So in order to maintain his gentlemanly persona, he took a creative risk. He would write 
novels anonymously. Oh, well, that sounds like Lady Whistledown. <laughs> exactly. It was Lady Whistledown. And he never thought it would be the kind of success that it did. The mystery of it also sold books. He titled it Waverly, and the world was blown away by Waverly. It became the best-sellingest book on the planet. He became the highest-paid author in Britain. In eight years, Scott and his publishers worked the prices up of his novels from a guinea for Waverly in three volumes to two guineas for the latter ones. There would be 28 Waverly novels. Well, I checked that out, uh, by the way, you know, how much a guinea at that time would be worth today. And the inner Google webs uh, estimate the value of a guinea to be about $120. I mean, books were a rich kid thing back then. Well, they were. Uh, but Scott thought about that, and he had a solution. If you couldn't afford the book, you could join a subscription library and buy an adaptation for half a crown. He also sold abbreviated versions of his stories for kids for just a penny. He was targeting everyone, and he sold books in the tens of thousands. 17 years, he wrote 28 Waverly novels. The world learned that they loved novels. Then Scott didn't tell anyone he was the author. <laughs> I mean, he had all these tricks, a little bit like Lady Whistledown, so that he could get his books to the publisher without uh, people figuring out. But, of course, eventually they did. After the first hit was a success, the following books, you know, on the cover, they didn't say anonymous. They said these are by the author of Waverly. It wasn't until a dinner party in 1827 that he publicly acknowledged that he really was the author and that he was redeeming the novel. <laughs> After Scott came a bunch of novelists, Tolstoy, Flaubert, you know, Victor Hugo, Charles Dickens, a lot of them, both men and women, began writing novels. So he made novel writing single-handedly cool. Yes. You know, well, so Scott's significance is clearly in, in his legacy, and you know, perhaps even more than his actual writing. You know, I think there's some probable truth to that. I mean, Scott's works are fun. When we read the short story that we're going to read next week, you'll see a little bit, if you're not familiar with it, what, what it's about. It's fun. It's fast-paced. His settings are interesting. Portrayals of people of the time. The settings are unfamiliar. That's what people loved about them then. That's what people like about them now. We can identify with the motivations and the passions, even if the culture is far away from us and, and remote. His ability to capitalize uh, on his talents and promote something good. He writes about war. His books, though, aren't groupsome. I mean, that was intentional. He often wrote through the lens of the first person of someone telling about the war instead of describing it so it wouldn't be so gory. He expresses the world in a positive way. He sees strengths and possibilities instead of competition and domination. He explores the dynamics of social power and the misuse of authority, but he leaves open the possibility that everything can end well. You know, I think the world in the 19th century identified with that, and they found hope there. And to be honest, the world of the 21st century may have something to learn from the Wizard of the North, as he was called, as well. <laughs> well, indeed, I agree. And may we all find a little fun, a friend from a different clan, and a little love, and a little bit of romance up there, especially around Loch Katrin. <laughs> I think so. 
Well, thanks for being with us today. Uh, we appreciate your time, and uh, we'd like to keep in touch with you. Follow us on our social media, on our Facebook page, on our Instagram page. Check out our webpage, howtolovelitpodcast.com. We've got lots of great things there for teachers. We have T-shirts. We have all kind of information for you to use in the classroom. Thanks again for being with us. Peace out. Peace out.